Thank you for tuning in. My name is Brittany, and I'm really excited that you're here to check out this new message with our current series, Redemption. Good morning. Good morning. Woo! Let's do this. If you have a Bible, you can open it up to all of it, because that's where we're going to be this morning. We'll start in Genesis 1. We're going to move around to a couple of different places. Kicking off a brand new series called Redemption. And let me tell you why. So if you missed our last Sunday night service, which was last Sunday, first off, you missed out on a great time. So next time we have one, try and get there. It was a fantastic night. But also, uh, we kind of did like a state of the church uh, during that service. And one of the things we announced is that we are changing our name from Redemption City Church to just Redemption Church. And there's a couple of different reasons for that. Um, one is uh, we think it's a, a little more focused. We just want to kind of narrow in on that word redemption. Uh, also, uh, just because of moves and history and all that kind of stuff, um, we're not in the city, like the city, you know, so we don't need to pretend and redemption, redemption Suburban Church does not have a good ring to it. So we're just going to roll with redemption. So let me tell you what that means for you. Um, it means that when you refer to the church, you can, you know, redemption, don't use RCC anymore. Okay, you got to put a dollar in the tithe box every time you say that. Cool? I'm kidding. All right. So with that, we're kicking off this series simply titled Redemption. Now, here's the point of this series. It's not a church series as in like, let's talk about our church and redemption. It's a word series around the word redemption this rich theological term that we say a lot and we write a lot and we put on everything uh, really that we do as a church. Well, why? And what does this word mean? And so here's my hope over the next eight weeks, concluding on Easter Sunday, uh, is that when I say the word redemption or when you hear the phrase, everyone is invited to experience redemption or somebody gets on stage and says, here's my redemption story, that you know that a redemption story is not my interaction with the people of this church. That might be part of it, but a redemption story is redemption. And when we say everyone's invited to experience redemption, we don't just mean our Sunday morning service. We mean redemption. What does redemption mean? Well, that's what we're going to spend eight weeks talking about so that when you hear that word, it means what it's supposed to mean. On Easter Sunday, I'm going to teach out of Ephesians 1 verse 7. Ephesians 1, verse 7, which says this, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. Now, even as I uh, say that verse, it should bring up a couple of questions, like, who's him? And what's redemption? And why is there blood? And why do I need forgiveness? And what is grace? Well, all of those questions will be answered, just not today, eight weeks from today as we tell the story of redemption. And for those of you who are artistic, we'll also tell that story through a painting alongside. Some of you are like, is it done? No, it's not. You got eight weeks to finish it, so come on back. We're going to tell the story of redemption. Now, in order to tell the story of redemption properly, we have to go back to the beginning. And when I say the beginning, I mean the beginning, like Genesis 1, 1 and 2. In the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Holy Spirit was hovering over the face of the waters, all the way back to the beginning. 
Now, in the beginning means the beginning of time as we know. God existed outside of time. And when God existed outside of time before any of us, God uh, existed in perfect or in perfection. He had perfect community within, in, within his triune nature. He had everything that he needed. God did not create out of need. He had all that he needed within himself but he created and he formed. And God exists outside of time, but then he spoke time into existence when? In the beginning. So in the beginning, there was darkness and there was uh, without form, it was void and God spoke into it. The prophet Jeremiah gives us an indication of what uh, attributes of God he used in order to do this. It is he, God, who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom and by his understanding, stretched out the heavens. Through his power and his wisdom, the theological terms are omnipotent and omniscient, all-powerful and all-wise. And an all-powerful and an all-wise God spoke into motion all of creation. We believe that God created ex nihilo. That means out of nothing, that nothing existed, and he spoke it all into existence. And within the framework of Genesis chapter 1, the creation narrative, and as the Christian understands the, uh, the Genesis narrative here of creation, we see what was supposed to be. It's a rumor, I don't know if it's true, you can look for it on the internet, that um, in the very disappointing TV show Lost, uh, that if you watch the first two minutes, it tells you the answer to the whole uh, series, right? Now, I don't actually think the rumor is true because I don't even think the writers of Lost knew where they were going with that TV show, but it's an interesting idea. In the first chapter of Scripture, we see what was supposed to be. We see what God had originally intended. And this morning, I want to give us a picture of that perfection, of a garden that God had created. It's been said that the story of the Bible is just a story between two gardens. This one we have and the, the perfect one one day that we'll live in. And now we exist in the middle and in this garden, God formed. And we read through the Genesis narrative from beginning to end of chapter one. And what did we see present in that narrative? Well, of course, we saw God creating all of the fun things that we love. One of my favorite things right now to do with my daughter uh, is to ask her certain animal sounds. And uh, she responds, her favorite one is sheep. And her face gets so big and bah, and it's adorable. And in the narrative, we see the uh, making of all the animals and the plants and everything like that. But, but within that, then, or at the end, we get to Genesis 1, 26, 27. So God created them, male and female. Male and female, he created them, and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven, right? And rule and reign over them. Isn't it interesting that the first time that ruling or reigning is mentioned in the Bible, it's in reference to Humanity. Humanity. Not God, humanity. It's telling us something. Later, much later in the story, Jesus is going to show up way later in the story. Jesus is going to show up and he's going to talk about a kingdom. And when he talks about the kingdom, he's going to use a word that is in the same word type as this word that is used in Genesis 1.26, to rule and to reign. In the garden, let me give you a snapshot of what we saw. First, we see man existing in perfect relationship with God. 
man existing in perfect relationship with God. Secondly, in the garden, we see man existing in relationship uh, with fellow humanity, in this case, woman. And so we see uh, man and woman or human relationships good, not broken. And the other third thing we see in the garden, we see man living in harmony with creation, with the actual created things. The fourth thing we see in, cre- in, uh, in the creation narrative in Genesis chapter one is we see uh, God's operating values in the system that he created out of nothing. And so there was nothing and it was dark and he brought light and it was void and he filled it. Said it maybe a little bit easier. Uh, what we see in the garden is uh, man, or what we see in the garden is that man should value relationship with God. Man should value relationship with each other. Uh, man should value creation and man should operate out of God's values. And we see all of these things existing in Genesis chapter one. Now you could ask, well, well, how did God go about doing that? Well, uh, we get a little bit of insight into that much later in the Bible in Colossians 1.16 when it says this, for by him, the him now is Jesus, all things and the all there is going to be a reference to not just what we see, but what we don't see. It actually gets into that. For by him, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, all things, this earth and the entire universe. What we see And what we don't see, all of it was made through and around and for and in Christ. All things. Now, he's telling us this in Colossians, but what it's telling us is that even back at the beginning, it all revolved around Jesus. Giving us another hint. And all the garden does, it gives us a snapshot of what human life is all about and what it's supposed to be. You could say this, we're all on a quest to get back to the garden and what existed in the garden. So it's all to be around Jesus. Now the question would be then, so what do I do with this information? How does the Christian now respond to seeing what was present there and that it's all in and through Jesus? Well, here's the incorrect response that sometimes humans do and Romans teaches us this or warns us of this in chapter one. What we have a tendency to do is to look then into creation and to try and make it about us and to try to elevate ourselves. Now, God did some elevating of humanity. Genesis 1.26, in that verse, it tells us that we were the penultimate of creation. We were the only thing that God created that he says he made in his image. What does it mean to be made in God's image? Well, it doesn't mean that we're all many gods, okay? It means that we, humanity, are to resemble God and do resemble God more than any other part of his creation, which means it's not bad to say, oh my gosh, I see creation or I see God most when uh, I'm looking up into the night sky. It's not bad to see God in that. It's not bad to say, man, I see God or I feel close to God when I'm on the beach and I you know, see the ocean or the snow falling. But what Genesis 1, 26 and 27 is teaching us is what resembles God most is humanity. That we, we are to resemble God most. We are the best picture for other people of what God is supposed to be like or what he is like. 
So what should our response to this be? Well, Revelation 4.11 teaches us what, our, what the human response to understanding what happened in the garden is supposed to be. Ironically, it's all the way at the end of the story, or at least the part of the story that's been told thus far. Revelation 4.11. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. In other words, the writer is saying, you deserve worship and praise. Why? Because you created all things. The all, going back to the Colossians verse, that which is seen and that which is unseen, which, by the way, should give the Christian um, great comfort and hope. Uh, there is a, uh, a reality that exists that we don't see, a spiritual reality, but Jesus has dominion over that one too. It says, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. The human response... The human response to understanding the creation story is supposed to be, now I worship God. I worship him. Now, of course, in church, we worship him via song, right? It's why sometimes you see people raising hand because they're just worshiping and adoring the God who spoke it all into existence. There's many ways, of course, to worship him, not just that. But that is to be how we respond to this knowledge. I worship him now. Okay, y'all need to give me three seconds here. There we go. Either that I was going to trip and this was going to get embarrassing. Human responds with worship. He created everything. Now there's distortions of this. There's distortions of this that have been philosophies that have emerged out of creation that have tried to distort the message that creation is trying to tell. And one of those distortions is something called materialism. Here's the idea behind materialism. Uh, Wayne Grudem, by the way, theologian, points this out. And uh, the idea of materialism is that God existed and matter existed at the same time. And uh, then God took the matter that existed and formed the earth. Christians, we don't believe that. We believe that nothing existed and then God created out of nothing. Why is that important for the Christian in that distinction? Because if matter existed as God existed, then they were both eternal and we believe that one thing, God, supersedes all things. Now, most Christians would say, no, no, I, yeah, I believe that. Uh, but I love what Wayne Grudem points out when he says, most Christians aren't materialists in philosophy, but they're practical materialists in living. You know what that means? It means oftentimes what we do is we worship the created things instead of the creator. And the natural inclinations of our heart go to that which has been created. Money, stuff whatever it might be. And we worship those things. And we don't worship them by like maybe bowing down, but we worship them by making them the deepest love of our heart. And what the creation story was supposed to be painting for us was that God spoke all into existence, so he deserves all of the honor and the glory and the worship of our hearts. Another distortion um, is something called dualism. Uh, dualism, most properly explained in 2019, is Star Wars theology. Okay, good movie, bad doctrine. Now, the idea behind Star Wars theology is what? There's two equal forces, and what are they doing? They're competing with each other, trying to see who's going to win. Guess what, Christian? We don't believe that. We believe that there is one force in the universe, God, and that everything else exists underneath him. There's no competition. God is the winner. He already won on the cross. 
This is very important for the Christian. It's important for the Christian not to fall into that trap because um, Christian, when there is evil present in your life, you're not hoping God can beat it. You already know that he has, that he is over top of all of it. This is important for the Christian. Another distortion um, is something called deism. The idea behind deism is that God created and he set the earth in motion and then he stepped away. He just stepped away and he's letting it do whatever he wants. Hebrews, by the way, teaches us that this isn't the case. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. He upholds it. In other words, he's still in it. This is important for the Christian. Why? Because it reminds us that God is intimately and intricately involved in every human life. That he knows each and every one of us. And all of this is wrapped up into the creation story. And it's where the journey of understanding redemption begins. And that verse in chapter 1, in 26 and 27, when it talks about man being created in the image of God, the natural question then would be, okay, so if I've been created, if you've been created and I've been created to rule and to reign, what does that look like? And what does that mean? Well, another biblical author, a guy by the name of Isaiah, gives us a hint when he says this. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Now, we're talking about Genesis chapter 1, which means, cliche or not, we get to stop for a second and we get to talk about some of the big questions of life. Like, why do I exist? Or what's my purpose? And this uh, verse right here reminds us of this important thing that we see in Genesis chapter one. Why has humanity been created? To bring God glory. What is the distortion of creation? The biggest distortion of creation, the biggest lie that humans believe is what? That life and the purpose of it is to bring myself glory. And almost every time, really, when you see a break from the biblical narrative or from a biblical way of living, what has happened is a human has replaced their main priority in life as instead of bringing God glory, I'm now trying to bring myself glory. In other words, instead of saying, God, you are most important, we try to say, no, I am most important. And the, the uh, Genesis chapter one, and, and then through this passage here reminds us that you and I have one aim in life, one thing that is to drive us, and that is to bring God glory. Now, how do we bring him glory? What did it say in the garden? We bring him glory by how it is that we do the first thing he told us to do, rule and reign. Now, here's a secret. We're not ruling and reigning our own kingdom. We're ruling or we're bringing a, a rule. And by the way, that, that, that word rule there, what that means is to, uh, to, to have a value system operating over something. What we do is we bring that now into all that we do. So let me walk this out for you. Because there's, there's four applications of this. We've already hit them. There's four things present in the garden, but there are also four applications on how the Christian lives life. See, to, or in order to understand true redemption, we have to uh, understand what first existed. So what was the first one? 
Well, the first thing is this, and if there's a moment or if you're existing in a place in life right now um, that is less than full, walk yourself through these four questions. The first one, what is human made for? What is human to bring God glory? Okay, so how does that start? What did we see in the garden? Right relationship with God. So where does it always start with the human? Am I in right relationship with God? That's where it always starts. So the first question the human asks is, am I in right relationship with God? First question you're to ask before you run off anywhere else, before you think, um, you know, what I really just need is a new job or what I really need is, um, you know, a, a new friend or what I really need is a new this or a new that. Before we ask those questions, we ask, am I in right relationship with God first? It's the first question the humans to ask because it's the first thing that we see present in the garden. And so we start, am I in right relationship with God? Now, Spoiler alert, the garden doesn't last forever, right? We exist outside of that now because it broke down. And uh, of course, I'm going to get to this much later in the story, but I don't want anyone to leave and never come back and not hear that the way that right relationship with God happens now is by the one who everything happened with at the beginning, which was what? Jesus. See, Colossians 1 tells us that Jesus has been around from the very beginning, and he was the one who created all of this. But also later in the story, he is the one and how we get back into right relationship with God. That's the first thing. Now, we're going to talk about a personal application and an and a outward action through each of these four. So the first question the human asks is, am I in right relationship with God? What this also teaches us, though, is that every other human is made to be in right relationship with God. Everyone is. It also teaches us that, the, uh, that if, if, if every human is made in the image of God, this is why the Christian highly values human life. All human life. From beginning to end of the human life spectrum, Christians ought to highly value human life because all humans are made in the image of God. And this has applications across the board. It has applications in, in what we think and believe uh, uh, about every person, regardless of what's happened in their life. And it's why we say everyone's invited to experience redemption right? It's why we involve ourselves in a ministry that serves people in prison that maybe society has forgotten about because everyone is made in the image of God. It has application when you're in middle school or high school or elementary school and you're picking on the kid who looks different or sounds different than everybody else. Or when you're at work and you're older. It's why we value human life. It's why we value human life uh, that uh, maybe came out or a human who lives in an existence uh, that the world might say, well, that's less than a standard. Right? They can't operate a full life. No, we value all of human life as Christians. So do you learn from the garden? That as a Christian, you should have a picture of every person is made in the image of God. Secondly, what existed in the garden? Man and woman were in right relationship with each other. Man and, and woman. So first where this starts, by the way, is in the marriage. So to live out what existed in the garden, the first thing, if we are married, we ask is, am I in right relationship with my spouse? Because that existed in the garden. The second thing then, though, that is it goes not just man and woman as in the garden, but that was a picture of all of humanity in right relationship with each other. This is why the Christian so highly values reconciliation or restoration of broken relationship. 
This is why Jesus spent so much of his time talking about the nature of living within the context of proper relationship. Because right relationship one to another existed in the garden, and that's what was supposed to have always existed, but was broken down. It's why Jesus says what are the two great commands? Love God first, be in right relationship with God, and second, love each other, be in right relationship with each other. See, what Jesus did when he came, I know I'm jumping ahead, is he just went back to the garden and tried to recreate what was there. What you and I are doing and what the church is supposed to be, by the way, the church is supposed to be just a snapshot of the garden. And what existed in the garden was people in relationship with God and people in right relationship with each other. It's why it's so important that we operate biblically when it comes to um, a breakdown of relationships amongst people in a church. No, no, we have to restore that right relationship. Right? That's why a couple of weeks ago, we spent time talking about why gossip and slander and all of these things are so destructive. Well, it breaks down what was supposed to be originally in the garden. You know, in the second garden, the church, and in the ultimate garden, when God comes back. So the question then would be the first one, anyone, am I in right relationship with the people around me? And then secondly, am I about being in right relationship with people out there? This is what the garden teaches us. The third one, I'm not going to spend a whole bunch of time on this one because it's probably a longer discussion, uh, but in the garden, man and creation were in right relationship. Man and creation. It means this. It means that as Christians, we should value creation. Now, there's a lot said in, uh, Jesus gets into this a little bit in talking about the relationship with man and creation, particularly as it relates to animals and things like that. Uh, but here's where we should at least, um, a starting point, maybe a common denominator. If you call yourself a Christian and, and just don't care at all about God's creation, well, you're missing a mark. Even the Bible says this. It says, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. The idea being this, that creation, that creation reveals the glory of God, and so therefore we should value it. Now, as humans, we don't serve creation. We were told to rule over it, right? So um, we don't serve creation. It serves us, but we should value it deeply. We should care about it. We should care about what God has formed. You know that Romans teaches us that creation is longing for its redemption. That as beautiful as the earth is and as beautiful as the, uh, you know, whatever your favorite picture of God's creation is, that it's, it's actually lacking and incomplete. It's not as beautiful as it will be. That even creation is longing for its redemption. Let me fix, by the way, a quick theological error that maybe we have fallen in. Our end goal is not to be taken away to an ethereal place, right? That's not the end of time. No, the end goal is God coming down and redeeming this. And the whole point, not the whole point, the gospel teaches us how to make that happen now. Instead of just waiting for God to come back and fix everything, he says, why don't you get started now? Why don't you get started now by helping people get back into right relationship with him? Why don't you get started now by helping people get into right relationship with each other? Why don't you get started now by valuing my creation and then I'll come back and finish the job? 
Fourth thing that existed in the garden was God's operating values led the garden, formed the garden, the way the uh, humans interacted, the way humans interacted with animals, uh, the ecosystem, all of it was perfect. And the systems and the structures of the garden were perfect and they were broken down. So what does this mean? It means this, Christian. It means that one of our roles as Christians is to restore God's values in the world. Three words that are often used for this um, throughout the scripture are his peace, his justice, and his righteousness. His peace, his justice, and his righteousness. Christian, this is why it is so important how the Christian acts when they leave the church. It's why phrases like, oh, it's just my business, the implication being I don't have to operate that in a biblical way or in a godly way is, uh, is absurd. Your job, right? Like your job, your occupation is part of your worship. It's you being out there doing what you do, reestablishing God's peace, his justice, and his righteousness. It's why Christians can't turn a blind eye to injustice. Because every time we allow injustice to continue, we're saying, ah, the kingdom doesn't matter. No, the Christian is uh, and exists, and the church exists to restore God's justice and his peace and his righteousness on earth. Part of going back to the beginning of the story is also to open up our eyes that the story is so much bigger than did you raise your hand to accept Jesus when you were six? The story's so much bigger than that. The story is not just, did you cross the line of faith at some point? I hope everyone does, obviously. But the point is, did you step into now your role as a ruler and a reigner in God's kingdom to bring his values into everything? It means I, I, I can't live out this faith that was given to me by grace and just be okay with brokenness uh, in relationships all around and close to me without saying, God, can you please redeem this? It means, um, and how this always plays out is different, but it means I can't be okay as being a Christian uh, and, and being like, listen, the story of the parable of the prodigal son is not just uh, the fact that the one guy wasn't his neighbor and was his neighbor and all this. The idea was that religion turned a blind eye to injustice. And so being a Christian is now opening my eyes up to see injustice where it is and to go about fixing it when I can. And so each of us have ways of doing this. And how do we do it? We do it through the gospel. We do it through Jesus because all things come back to him. So then this question would be this, friend. Do you operate in all that you do in bringing God's justice and peace and righteousness into it? Do you? Like when you step into work, when you step into school, when you're on the team, do you bring his peace, his righteousness, and his justice with you? That's what existed in the garden.
That's who we're supposed to be. That's what we're supposed to be bringing. And that's what was all lost. And so we'll get to that next week. Let's pray. Thank you so much for checking out this message. If you'd like to know more on our church, you can go to experienceredemption.com.